From the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio, this is ReSound. You got anything? Mm, go. Well, we are building magic decks. To build a deck, Green. first you need to choose what colors you want to use. White. And there are five different colors. Blue. And each color has its own strength and weakness. Red. You look through your cards and, and you black, choose the ones that you think will help accomplish your goal. If you had a 1-1 one, one on the field and a 5-5, five, five, but the 5-5 five, five had trample, the 5-5 five, five had trample, the 5-5 five, five would deal 1 damage to the creature, and since it has trample, it also deals the remaining damage to the player. And that's uh, trample without... Play to the end. Go. Resound. Reason, sound. Regarding, sound. Again, sound. I'm Gwen Maxi. Each week in our program, we bring you stories from around the world, curated by the Third Coast Festival. Documentaries, narratives, soundscapes, humor, and all sorts of stuff we find interesting, provocative, exciting, and entertaining. We comb and cull, you sit back and listen. Such a deal. Tonight, we have three selections for you. First, Game Over a documentary in the form of a video game. Or is it a video game in the form of a documentary? Then, The Fair, a soundscape, a narrative, a book, and a movie all in one. And finally, we believe we are invincible. What does it take to push your body to its limit? The physical training may be grueling, but the mental training is no picnic either. Going inside the heads of competitive athletes. Stay with us. When VCRs first came out and movie rentals were the next big thing, Hollywood panicked that it would be the end of movie going as we knew it. I mean, why pay nine bucks in the theater when you can watch it at home for three, right? But it turns out that what they should have been worried about was Pong, Tetris, Doom 3, and Grand Theft Auto. Recently, video games have actually surpassed movie going as America's most favorite form of entertainment. Game Over, produced by Chris Brooks, takes a look at the potential of video games and asks not what we can do for video games, but what video games can do for us. Wow. It feels like I'm in some kind of virtual world. Of course I am. I mean, I'm I'm here talking to you, but I'm not really with you, right? I'm on the radio with a bunch of cheesy sound effects. In fact, here comes one now. A virtual helicopter virtually overhead. Doc! Just kidding. But this is weird. it's, It's like the start of a video game or something. What am I doing here? You are on a mission. I am? That response is incorrect. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm on a mission. Uh, what is it? You are to find out if video games can be used for educational purposes. Wow. A task to be accomplished with several levels of difficulty, I bet. How will I do that? You are armed with the following butt-kicking weapons. Curiosity. Research. A limited attention span. 
and a small to middling intelligence. Gee, I sound like the lion in The Wizard of Oz. Or was it the Tin Man? It was the Scarecrow. Oh yes, of course. Um, is that all? No. You were also provided with an automatic pistol, an assault shotgun, a rocket-propelled grenade launcher, a three-barrel ripper machine gun, some laser mines, and a selection of pipe bombs. That'll be very helpful, thanks. Anything else? You get extra points for stealing cars, running over pedestrians, shooting cops, and beating up women and old people with a baseball bat. Uh, this is public radio. I don't know if I can do that. Why not? You can do it on your home computer, on a PlayStation 2, the Nintendo GameCube, and the Microsoft Xbox. Anybody can. But how do I... Just shoot anything that moves. If you're gonna make an educational documentary, it's gotta be a good documentary. It's gotta be a good show, not just educational. The hopes and prayers of people everywhere with you. You must not feel fear. The fate of the world is in your hands. Wow. What are you waiting for? Christmas? But how do I start? Come on. Attention span, dangerously low. Okay, okay, okay. Attention span, timing out. No, no, wait, I... Look, there's an alien coming to get me. <laughs> Payback time. <laughs> Wasted. Attention span restored. Okay, but it seems like a pretty cheap way to do it. Attention span dropping. Again? Oh, okay, forget it. I'm just going to shoot my way into chapter one. Here I go! this place? Level 1. The Video Game Museum. Oh, this is like video game paleontology. Hey, look over here. Here's the very first video game. Ah, oh, this looks positively prehistoric. Just brush the dust off the label here. Something called Pong. Yeah, it says it, it dates back to 1975. Wow, I mean, that's eons ago. I mean, back, that's back when you were listening to... Look at me! And you were probably listening to it on something called a record player. Imagine, a world without MP3. Anyway, how would you even begin to describe this ancient game? Description. A digital ping-pong ball bounces off walls in slow motion. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. And you know, you played this game, Pong, in bars and cocktail lounges. Why? Because back then, there was no such thing as a home computer. <laughs> Believe it or not. Well, if Pong is the kind of game you remember, you're going to have to do a little bit more work to play a modern video game like, say, EverQuest. Now see how that guy is offering a res? A res that's a resurrection. If you die, you go back to your buying spot, right? Told you about that, did I? You, you, once you die, you either have to go back to the zone where your corpse was and find it, or you can get a cleric to cast resurrection on it, which brings you back there. And once you die, you lose a certain amount of experience. But with, with these certain types of resurrections, the higher power they are, the more experience you would get back. 
This is like a university course or something. How long did it take you to learn all this stuff? Oh, man, this took me like a month to actually learn all the basics. Only and a month? I'm a quick learner with this. I hope you were taking notes. At certain levels, you get spells. Like, I get level one spells. Okay. As a pure caster, every four levels afterwards, okay. up to like level Okay, we get the point. It's complicated. Five. But every four levels, so I get okay, new that, spells. Okay, that's enough. But I gotta stop. Buy him, Somebody so stop him. You gotta get money for spells. <laughs> Payback time. Damn, I'm good. You know, I don't know if we should be shooting people like this. Yeah, piece of cake. Well, I was just trying to make the point that video games have come a long way since Pong. Really, since the mid-80s, the industry hasn't really looked back. Uh, in 2002, in North America alone, the industry did about $7 billion in revenue. Uh, just a second, excuse me. Help? This is the help menu. Need help? Yes, who's this guy? Douglas Lowenstein. President of the Interactive Digital Software Association, the organization representing video game manufacturers. Thank you. Go ahead, Mr. Lowenstein. Uh, well, I think if you, if you look at the people playing games today, we have a generation between 18 and 35 years old who grew up with computers, really the first generation that grew up with that technology as a central part of their lives. And then the generation right behind them, 2 to 17, is the first generation to grow up with the Internet. So for both of these generations, increasingly, interactivity is uh, something that they're very comfortable with. And interactivity, is that the quality that makes video games so compelling? Well, I think that um, there are a number of reasons the games are engrossing. Um, if you look at them today, they're graphically very realistic. Secondly, they're very immersive. They really take you into places that um, in your own daily life you're not likely to go, whether it's on a sort of a mythological quest or being in a race car. It allows you to experience things in a very, very real way, in a very meaningful way, um, that nothing else does. Allowing you to experience things in a very real way. Hey, this is good news for our mission. Or bad news, depending on your perspective, but news it is. Good morning. In the news of this hour, a controversial video game arrives today in stores across North America. It's the sequel to one of the most popular and violent games of the past year. Grand Theft Auto 3 is a game where people steal cars, beat up women and wreak havoc. Now, about this mission we're on. You are to find out if video games can be used for educational purposes. Right, and the interesting thing is, the reason video games hit the headlines is because of their potential for education. Some people argue games like Grand Theft Auto teach. They say they teach violence. Exposure to violent video games causes an increase in aggressive behavior. There's no doubt about it. Help again? This is the help menu. This voice belongs to... Craig Anderson, chair of the Department of Psychology at Iowa State University. He testified at the Senate committee hearing on the impact of interactive violence on children. In playing a violent video game, you have to uh, choose to behave aggressively. In, in other words, you get practice as a player. You get practice making the decisions to pull the trigger or to throw the punch or to you know, launch the grenade. And that active participation itself may, in some sense, be a more complete learning tool than simply watching uh, characters behave aggressively on a TV show or in a movie. 
in a lot, lot of games, the, some of the first-person shooter games, there's a narrator that, that will say things like impressive or very good when you blow someone up uh, with a good rifle shot. You get in one game, if you run over pedestrians in a particularly flashy way, you get extra bonus points or splatter points. And so, you know, if the content that's in the video game teaches how to think aggressively and how to decide to behave aggressively and then actually carry out the act, I mean, that's what's going to get learned. Schools in the Denver area reopened today. Columbine High School remains closed. Fourteen students and a teacher died in the school Tuesday when two of the students fired more than eight rounds. Eric Harrison, Dylan Cleveland were dedicated computer game players. The Littleton massacre has raised concerns about the effect of violent video and computer games on children. Targets eliminated. Seven. Bonus points. Five. Piece of cake. So it's that simple. Playing Duke Nukem and Doom caused the Columbine High School shooting. Ergo, video games have an educational effect, and my mission is accomplished. That response is incorrect. You mean it's not that simple? Douglas Lowenstein. I mean, that is such a simplistic understanding of human nature, because there's a big difference between people understanding a moral environment in which they live. You play a video game, oh, gee, I guess it's okay to get my dad's gun and go down the street and shoot all my friends. Well, people understand that's wrong. They live in a culture and a society which is, is and, 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 and a value system that makes it absolutely clear how that is. And, and, and people kind of make believe none of that exists. And, and so to say that, well, gee, if you play a video game, it teaches you how to kill people. I mean, th that just defies common sense when you think about it. That's what makes this not so simple. Learning doesn't take place in a vacuum. And video games, just like homework, exist within a wider environment that colors their effectiveness as teaching tools. This means using video games for education may be harder than I thought. Craig Anderson. The content uh, doesn't sort of automatically make it either a good or a bad teaching tool. So the same kinds of process that we worry about in terms of violent games should, in fact, make video games a very effective way of teaching certain kinds of content. Unfortunately, there isn't a whole lot of research on the educational aspects. So it'd be a good starting point to talk about, yeah, this has, you know, we know it has these effects. Now let's see if we can design some games that have a positive effect, that teach people how to cooperate or how to do math problems or how to read. You know, this mission is turning out to be more complicated than I figured. Now I've got to track down games designed to have positive educational effect. I guess this probably means... Congratulations. You've completed level one. Yeah, thank you. I just figured that out for myself. Would you like to move on to level two? Beam me up, Scotty. Level two. I'm Henry Jenkins. I'm the director of the Comparative Media Studies program at MIT. I don't believe the games will turn kids into scientists, artists, or historians any more than I think games will turn kids into psycho killers. 
What I believe is that games give people an experience and that what happens with that experience is shaped profoundly by their larger surroundings. But I mean, it's, it's abundantly clear that kids will stay up all night to solve a problem they encounter in a game and will spend about 10 minutes scrawling on a piece of notebook paper to solve a problem they see in a textbook. The problem is that when, you know, when people use the word educational games, what they have in their mind is something that's dull as dishwater, and no, it's not going to sell. Welcome to Math Blaster. To win, zap the answers to the math problems. And they're off! 7 minus 2 equals 5. 2 minus 2 equals... A lot of the early educational games were very drill-oriented. Doug Lowenstein. They took your multiplication tables from the piece of paper that you had to write with, and they put them into kind of an electronic environment, uh, and maybe they had some characters there that made it a little bit more fun to do it, and you got some rewards. But, but ultimately, I think they weren't terribly engaging. Six plus one equals seven. I mean, one of the things that I've said to people over the years when they ask, well, gee, you know, the commercial educational games market is really soft. Well, it is. It's really, you know, not been a very successful marketplace. Um, and the reason is that when was the last time, you know, your average 10-year-old asked mom or dad to get them Math Blaster? Well, short my circuits, you placed second. That's worthy of a trading card. You suck. Now, just a minute. I thought we left you in level one. Come on. No, we're not talking about shooter games now. We're talking about games that build, okay? Like this. You get to... Decide. Will your world size be tiny or huge? Now you can have Pangeas, um, continents. You're looking over the shoulder of 13-year-old Will Powelson. The game he's playing is called Civilization. That determines the number of mountains. This game challenges you to build up a civilization over a period of 6,000 years. Clearing this forest will increase production. Civilization is a commercial game. It was designed to be used the way Will is using it here, not in a school classroom. But it's more like the kind of educational game that MIT's Henry Jenkins talks about. Something like Civilization III or uh, SimCity, these are some of the most successful franchises in game history. They also happen to have embedded in them things the designer wanted to teach, models of how historical change built on the availability of resources. These were powerful lessons that were taught through commercially successful games. The paradox is that every time we get an educational game that sells extremely well, people stop thinking of it as an educational game. Bonus point opportunity. Oh, great. I'll take advantage of this opportunity to find out the secret of this game's success from the guy who designed it, Sid Meier of FireAxis Software. Well, I think it's a matter of priorities. When we do a game, our first priority is, is fun. We have found, uh, especially with our game Civilization, that, that people enjoy the learning process. And we, we really kind of make a distinction between learning and education. Uh, it's kind of funny for us. But people enjoy learning, but they don't necessarily enjoy being educated. And the, the distinction that we make is kind of that learning is something that happens at your own pace, uh, following your own interest. Education is probably more of a curriculum format-driven process. The game essentially has to be fun. And if learning can be a part of the fun process, then that's a great feature. But we don't sacrifice uh, any of the fun elements of the game to make it an educational process. Bonus points, one.
The only problem is you may or may not get educational bonus points when you play a commercial game outside of a structured learning environment. It really depends on what you bring to it. For example, remember Will Powelson, the 13-year-old playing Civilization? Well, here's another of his favorite games, Final Fantasy. It's not even designed to be an educational game, but in his case... This game is really what taught me to read. I got a PlayStation, and I got this game. Only problem was I couldn't read, and there was too much text. I, I eventually learned to read because I hated having to ha always have my dad to read everything. Since then, my, my ability to read has gone way up. If I could skip, I can just skip through all this and um, I, I can just read it. I mean, I can read a book like um, the fourth Harry Potter, about 400 pages in a day or two. In Will's case, Final Fantasy motivated him to read, but it didn't happen in a complete vacuum. His dad was involved, for instance. For somebody else in a different home environment, it might be another story altogether. Henry Jenkins. Games by themselves are simply an experience that kids will make sense of in a variety of ways, and in all likelihood, that experience by themselves will be treated like any other fantasy that is something largely removed from the realm of their normal activity. So what we know with, when we think about games for education is that the game by itself may teach relatively little without the reinforcement of curricular activity in the classroom. The challenge is not simply to design games to teach, but to design curriculum that allows teachers to use those games effectively in a learning context. This is the Grade 5 Health Education class at the Smalley School in Boundbrook, New Jersey. The students are hunkered around computer monitors, playing an educational game called Hungry Red Planet, a video game within the larger learning context of a school curriculum. Click on a hard-boiled egg, it'll tell you how much fat, calories, and sodium it has. This game is designed to teach basic nutrition, a lesson class teacher Greg Mott taught last year by standing in front of the class and lecturing. When I approached my students in November saying we're going to be piloting this program and it's a game, it's a video game, they just, oh, they got all excited, oh, we're going to do a game? I said, yeah, but you're also going to learn. You're going to have to, you know, basically learn all the way through to get to this game. And now they all come back, oh, I can't wait to go back. I'm learning so much about it. I've had a couple of parents actually come to me and uh, say that, oh, my child's telling me I have to change my diet because I'm not eating the right foods. And obviously it's working. So I'm, I'm very happy with it. It's better than last year. And the more you play it, the more healthy you learn how to eat. Now, this mission that we're on... To find out if video games can be used for educational purposes. Yeah, in terms of that, this classroom looks pretty interesting. But I wonder if there isn't still a real gulf between a game like Hungry Red Planet, where you plan dinner menus in the classroom, like this... Here is the menu planning screen. You can serve pizza and candy or tofu and broccoli. It's all up to you and a top-selling commercial game like Grand Theft Auto, where you shoot cops and hijack cars like this. I am an officer of the law! Stop! Now, part of the gulf between these games is money. The development budget for a game like Grand Theft Auto runs to several million dollars, and that's nowhere near the money going into developing games for the education market. But I wonder if money is only part of the story. Because over at MIT, Henry Jenkins and his colleagues are looking at other qualities that give some commercial games the edge. 
For one thing, most educational games in the market today are utterly humorless, and that's part of the reason why they totally fail with kids. That the games that kids like have a sense of excitement, they tap deeply into the pulp roots of American popular culture. And I think any educational intervention needs to do that. There needs to be, you know, not, not out and out violence and brutality that people are frightened of about games, but certainly a sense of mild transgression. Transgression. Now, that would be when you kind of cross into forbidden territory by doing things in the virtual reality of a game that would be unacceptable out in the real world. For example, saying things like, Damn, you're ugly. Right. Or, What are you, some bottom-feeding, scum-sucking algae eater? No, I'm Henry Jenkins. You're gonna die for that. Stop that! No, wait! Stop that! No, wait just a minute! I won't have you shooting my interviewees! Henry Jenkins is a highly respected academic! That response was invalid. I'll show you invalid. I'm unplugging your weapons right now! Look, Chris, I've still got the greatest confidence in the mission. This is my documentary, not yours. Chris... Stop. Too late. There goes your assault shotgun. Stop. <laughs> when there you? goes your rocket-propelled grenade launcher. Stop, Chris. There goes your three-barrel ripper machine gun. Stop. Ooh, what do you think of that? I think I'll sing a little song. Fine. You you go right ahead it's and do that while I take out Daisy. every last one of your pipe bombs. Daisy, Daisy. There. That's done. Give me your I'm terribly sorry, Doctor Je- Doctor Jenkins. Are you okay? I think so. Uh, Good. I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm just having a little trouble here in the virtual documentary world. Can I ask you to pick up where you left off? Yeah, it'd be wonderful. You were talking about the transgressive quality and, and how it works in some of the commercial video games. Okay. The problem is we've allowed that sense of transgression to be co-opted mindlessly toward criminal elements, toward fantasies of, you know, just blowing people away, when in fact what kids want to play with is a sense of power, a sense that their actions in the world matter, have consequences, a sense that they have a certain autonomy from the people who control and regulate their lives, and their ways of channeling those fantasies that make games a very effective technology for teaching. You know, on the one hand, if it feels too much like green vegetables, if it feels like something that's purely good for you, then kids are not going to engage with it with the same level of passion as they engage with the games they stay up all night playing. If, on the other hand, it's too transgressive, it looks too popular, then educators are going to have stronger challenges from parents and from school boards about using those games in the classroom. So you've got to find that middle ground, and that's going to take some effort. Welcome. You've entered the world of electromagnetism. This may be that middle ground. One of half a dozen games being developed by Dr. Jenkins' Games to Teach project at MIT, it's designed to teach electromagnetism, not by sugarcoating a lesson with video game effects, but by building principles of electromagnetism into the very way you play the game. Look ahead, that looks like a charged particle. The aim of the MIT project is to invent groundbreaking games like this, then partner with commercial game manufacturers to develop them. And as they design these educational games of the future, Henry Jenkins and his colleagues may be finding clues to the nature of the learning process itself. Some of it is something as simple as there's an emotional stake in the game problem. It's something we care about. It's something that feels real to us. We're really there. We're really doing something. There's some risk that we're facing. There's some challenge we're trying to overcome. There's some reason we're doing what we're doing. I think what's interesting as we've discovered about building games to teach is the very first step is to ask what it is this information is good for. What does it allow you to do? Because in order to turn a problem into a game, 
you have to give a purpose, a motive, a set of challenges the player wants to accomplish in that game space. And that forces us to think about why we're learning what we're doing. And that may be the most fundamental lesson to come out of games and education. Sweet upon the seat of a bicycle built for two. Uh-oh. Now what? Chris Brooks. Hello, yes? This message was programmed into the onboard computer before the start of your mission to be played back at this time. Wow. The time allotted for the mission has now expired. You must make a choice. Press the escape key to exit gracefully or press restart to begin again. Thanks. I think I'll quit while I'm ahead. Congratulations. This documentary is now ended. Game Over was produced by Chris Brooks, a Canadian independent producer who works, appropriately enough, in Newfoundland, at the base of the cliff where Guglielmo Marconi, the father of radio, received the first transatlantic radio signal in 1901. Bonus points, one. Wine and cake for gentlemen, hay and corn for horses, a cup of ale for good old wives, and kisses for the lasses.
That was the song Keen Teen Skip by the band Clouded. Coming up, we take you out of the virtual world of lights and sound and sensory overload into the real world of lights and sound and sensory overload, the county fair. According to artist and producer Jason Rails, every fair is two fairs. During the day, it's sunny and bright, full of cuddly stuffed animals and babies. And at night, it's dark and ambiguously dangerous, more grown up and aggressive. To capture this transition between light and dark, he recorded 12 straight hours of the final day of the fair in Brockton, Massachusetts. I went to the fair with a friend. At noon, we paid $3 each, admission to a gated world that's bright and nice and farm animals, kitty rides, fun and easy prizes, puppets and grandmas, popcorn and babies. We left at midnight through the same gates we entered, the world dark and strangely lit, teenagers screams and glances, huge machines and crashes, ambiguous intentions, engineered terror, everything electric and swirling together. first stop for livestock. We see sheep, we see goats, we watch kids pose on a bull, we watch chicks hatch from their eggs, we watch children dressed alike in khaki pants, black shoes and white shirts prod and hook their animals with canes as they compete for ribbons and trophies and the chance to prod and hook their animals again at another larger fair. We see cows, we see pigs, we see chickens, The two-headed chicken, the world's smallest monkey. The Museum of World Oddities claims them both. The panels painted outside the tent depict the elephant-nosed pig and the rabbit armadillo. Tickets are a dollar. Nothing moves inside the tent. The world's fattest man is a snapshot. The world's ugliest woman is a newspaper headline. The mummy child is an obvious fake, and sunlight has made the willingness to suspend disbelief meaningless. But it's only a dollar. Next to that is the Titanic Junior and the Orient Express roller coaster. There are spinning mechanical bears, there's the one-way crazy bus. The tallest rides, though, are powered by muscle and gravity. The big pink slide pushed screams from little pink nine-year-olds. The screams of little pink babies, a hundred yards away, fall under two categories, zero to 12 months and 13 okay, to 24 months. Okay, the moment you've all been anxiously awaiting has arrived. It's 3 p.m. in time for the baby, baby contest. contest. Lisa from Fall River, Rick from Florida, and local resident Miss Gretchen will be judging the babies in three categories. Best theme costume or outfit, most playful, and the judge's choice overall, the one that just woos the judges. Choreographed displays belie hours of planning so and rehearsal. 
without further waiting these babies the toddler dressed in american flag jumper waving american flags performs his repertoire of best tricks here he comes justin likes to jump cameron six days old loves to eat baby frank says here he loves to be tickled and he sucks on his top lip they come and they come, and when judgment comes, that which was merely understood is made explicit. You have a beautiful baby, goes the conversation. Oh, I know, she won second prize. I am so happy to tell you that I have nothing to do with the judging. I did it once, I'll never do it again, ever. Mom, can we go see the pig <laughs> And if that's not clear enough, if a judge's nod is not approving, there's something even more straightforward, past judgment even. The trotter races pit four pigs against each other in a contest of irrefutable speed. They race around the track for Oreo cookies. The crowd is divided into quarters, and one child is chosen to cheer for each pig. The child with the winning pig is pulled from the crowd, is given a prize in the announcer's avuncular attention. As the porkers continue to race for treats, we treat ourselves to meats and sweets. What's your name? Polish sausage, barbecued pork, pork chunks are on the menu. Cotton candy, candied apples, apple fritters. We order two hot dogs, one with onions and some fries. The kid rings us up and calls out the order. One dog plain, one dog bad breath, he says. We reach six. The hinge of day. Time for the demolition derby. Afternoon dims to gloaming. The announcer calls the drivers to the track and begins the countdown. At zero, the crowd puts up a roar, the grandstand filled with people bound by bloodlust and squeamishness. The cars are painted with crossbones and American flags, painted with the words, fear this, Kevin 02, and Shoe City Auto. The wheel wells are hammered back, the doors are wired shut, and the drivers speed around the track backward with as much skill and speed as they do forward. It is night. We are ageless. We are older than we are. We are younger. The girls, clothed in tight shirts and red lights, slide through the crowd in protective, provocative groups of four or six. They're too old for their age. The boys stand awkwardly at the periphery. They operate singly or in pairs, and it seems the only confidence they can muster is pretending not to care. There are guns, guns that shoot BBs at pictures of Osama bin Laden. A dozen or so ragged scraps of paper are tacked to the wall. Osama has been obliterated, and what is left contains sketches of American aircraft bombing terrorists. Our senses are overrun. Lights mask and reveal. The tinted bulbs hide the truth of colors and show only the truth of shapes. Multi-ton German amusements with the names fireball and tornado are forces against nature that are stronger than gravity. We soar above trees, hardly human, our ears compromised by generator hum, amplified music, 
and the delighted screams of overstimulated girls a hundred feet above us. Fireworks crack open the night to reveal the men standing 20 feet in front of us in intermittent darkness. Big beer drinking men with their bellies pooched out, their heads upturned, and the percussion hits our ears as the lights burn out and darkness collapses around us once more. For our last ride, just before midnight, just before tomorrow and the return of the world, we're in the Ferris wheel gondola at the top of the world, taller than anyone else. Everything is far away and pretty. Lights under tents sparkle on the ground below us. Stars shine in the sky above us with no horizon in the blackness between them. We spin around and around. We're of the earth, we're of the sky. Everything spins together into a delightful, unfocused numbness. And until we put our feet back on the hard truth of the ground, we spin and spin agelessly as heaven and as earth and survey everything laid before us for our amusement. Produced by Jason Rails. The story you just heard is the radio component of a much larger artistic work. Jason Rails is here to talk with us. Jason, let's just start with the evolution of the work as a whole. It's so multifaceted. You have a book, a CD, a radio piece, a film. What was the evolution of it? The project started as this kind of problem-solving exercise. I was collaborating on some children's books with my girlfriend, and the idea is we would have this audio component, this kind of read-along component, uh, and she makes collages based on photographs that she then paints over and everything, and the, the books were kind of based on these outings that she had with her daughter, and she there was no way for her to, you know, hold the microphone and take photographs and mind her child. There was just too much stuff happening, so I was just trying to figure out a way that one person could capture decent audio and get decent imagery, so I went to the Brockton Fair in 2002 with a little tiny handheld camcorder and some head-worn stereo microphones and exported those uh, video stills into this image sequence that I bound into a book and made these little audio collages of the sounds at the fair. And that was it. That was the end of the project as far as I was concerned. But then Jay Allison, who's a radio producer in Woods Hole and runs a website called transom.org, saw the book and asked me if I wanted to make a radio piece based on the audio that I had. So I did, and in the meantime, I also made this flash animation to go along with it because it was going to play on the Internet. And uh, after that, I, I just submitted this flash project that I had to the Flash Film Festival and to the Sundance Online Film Festival 
you know, just thinking they would link to it and play it. But I got a call from the real Sundance Film Festival saying they wanted to play it as a documentary short in front of one of the features. So the project started out as a book, and it's colorful and beautiful, and it was really lush and saturated colors. Um, Can you describe the book for us? Because this isn't the average book you're going to find on the sale table at Barnes & Noble. Yeah, well, the the idea that that I had when I was going through all the footage, I had the sense that the fair is actually these two different events happening. The The daytime part of the fair is uh, very family-oriented. There's lots of kid kitty rides, cotton candy. There's, there's like this, uh, you know, petting zoo kind of thing happening. But then at night, you know, the sun goes down, all the teenagers come out, things start to get a little creepy. The You know, there's fireworks. Everything's a little bit more scary and... I decided to bind the book in a, a dos-a-dos format, which is essentially two books facing each other with a shared back cover. So you open it one way and you get all the images from the daytime section, and you flip the book around and open it the other way and you get all the images and the sounds from the nighttime section. And then also there are these gate folds where you fold out the papers one after the other, or you, you fold it out and then you fold it down and then you fold it back upon itself to reveal something. And so there's this one image of the outside of this magic show or something like that that says amazing illusion or something like that. Then you fold the paper out and down and, and into itself to kind of reveal something hidden inside there, which I think is is so much of what the fair experience is about. And particularly with, you know, going into these little booths that have the snake woman or something like that, you have to, you have to go around a corner and you have to peek inside or something to you know, experience the letdown of the <laughs> the paper mache lady. Why did you feel that sound needed to be a part of that? Well, I'd actually already made a couple books before, and they both had little audio components as well, little CDs to go with them. And it's it's a much deeper experience, definitely. And I think back to when I was first learning to read and when I was first enjoying books, a lot of the kids' books that I had did have a read-along record to go along with them. One of my absolutely favorite books as a kid was uh, this Wonder Woman record that my sister had that had this comic to go along with it. And there's a fight scene in there where this beautiful Amazonian villain is fighting with Wonder Woman who's on her knees, and they're, they're slapping each other, and there's all these like, oh, ah, ah kind of sounds and it's like I didn't know why I liked it but uh, but I definitely did even as a as a kid <laughs> oh that's hilarious dirty birdies those uh, comic book people <laughs> if you'd like to see more of Jason's work you can go to 23grand.com that's 23grand.com Here at ReSound, we absolutely adore getting mail. And frankly, who doesn't? If you have some feedback for us, good, bad, or ugly, email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You're listening to ReSound from Chicago Public Radio, curated by the Third Coast Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. 
In athletic competition, the margin of victory gets so much smaller every year, often just thousandths of a second, that it's anyone's guess what makes the difference between first and second place. Our next feature, called We Believe We Are Invincible, was produced by sound designer Ben Rubin, and it explores the mental edge athletes try to master as they prepare for competition. Every step of your life, you think it. How can I make each step in my race faster? No matter if you're washing a car, walking to the bathroom in your house, or going for a jog, no matter what you're doing, shopping for groceries, you, as a sprinter, you, you're always thinking, how can I be faster? I'm a high jumper, that's my thing. It's interesting, when I visualize the night before a meet, I always visualize in the third person and I'm outside of my body and I can see myself completing a jump from different angles, sometimes from behind, sometimes from the side. But when I'm actually in a competition, I visualize inside my body. I don't listen to music before I run. You know, a lot of guys you've seen with headsets on and stuff, I can't do that. That takes away from me. But I can put a song in my head and sing it, and it gives me that energy and that charge that I need. In order to beat your opponent, you got to know your opponent. You got to know them like the back of your hand if you want to know their weaknesses and their strengths so you can take advantage of the weaknesses and avoid them hitting you with their strengths. So I watch them while I'm warming up. He can run from the front, he can run from the back, he can run from the middle. Get to the call room, put our bags down, everybody take your warm-ups off. Get your hip numbers on, all right? Jumping up and down. Come on, muscles, let's get fine, let's get fine. We got a job to do, got a job to do. Get out there, walk us to the track. We're walking, and then again, I'm walking behind everybody. I want to see everybody walk in front of me as we go to the track. So we walking, walking. You hear the spice on the concrete as we walk. We're going around. Keep these spikes on warming them up like the tracks are burning out. They ain't doing up but getting warm. They're ready to grip this track. That's what's happening. So I watch them while I'm warming up. Watch them, see them doing the drill. Okay, okay. Okay, you seem like you got a little pep in this step today. Yeah, 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 yeah. You coming out the hole a little fast over there. Just get me psyched up. Because if you see them coming out fast, you got to. Okay, I got to get ready. They bring the pain. They bring the pain. I'm going to get ready too. Before I start the race, uh, the nervousness is making my heart beat fast and it's making me want to breathe fast, so I have to slow down my breathing. I definitely have a nervousness right before, uh, you know, the gun goes off. You're sitting there just on edge and you're almost at the point of shaking because uh, you've got all that adrenaline going. I'm the type of person that gets anxious because I get ready to run, but then when it's time to run, I'm not actually, I don't want to run no more when it's actually time. Man, I don't feel like running. That's why I used to go out fast, like too fast and, you know, end up dying. So anytime I get nervous or anxious, I analyze why I got nervous. So why am I anxious? Then once I actually realize why I'm anxious, it goes away. The flight check is when, when you get on a track, first thing you do is go through your flight check. And your flight check is making sure all the muscles and everything is firing or you don't feel any pain or nothing hurts or everything is on right. You check your shoes, 
from your shoes to your socks to your calves and your, your shins. How do I feel? Everything checks out. You go to your knees. How do they feel? Did I feel like I drank enough water before? You check your hamstrings, your quads. Does anything hurt? You do a couple of stretches or whatever is necessary. Do my legs feel like they're ready to run? You make sure your back is loose, your hands, you crack your knuckles, you adjust your neck, you adjust your back. Is there anything that really feels a little out of sync? See, because you don't want it to be out of sync when you run, you know? By this time, I've shed my warm-ups. There's something really nervous in me about taking my warm-ups off. It's almost like that's the worst part, is pulling the sweats over your spikes, because I'm always afraid that they're gonna get hung up or I'm not gonna get them off in time. So it just really serves to give me a little extra boost of adrenaline. If you feel a nail, you know, a, a hangnail on your toe, you go almost to a panic state. Right now, oh my God, I got a hangnail. It's just crazy because you become ultra sensitive to everything. But then you turn around and calm all of it down because then you have to be one with yourself and you have to be one with the starter. You have to be one with the track. You run the race probably through your head maybe once or twice. I'm supposed to be here, I'm supposed to be here, I'm supposed to be here. And then after you do that, I say, uh, I, I got this off a TV show, uh, engage the mechanism where I just kind of shut out everything around me. And it's kind of like the only thing I hear is my heartbeat. And, you know, I say a little prayer in that moment. And, you know, I just ask God to allow me to maximize my potential at this moment. I'm not asking for victory. I'm not asking, you know, for any special favor as far as winning and losing. But it's more or less just help me maximize my potential at this moment. And then it's race time. And if you're not ready, it doesn't matter at this point because you have to be ready. I want that adrenaline coming when he says, runners take your mark. Because I only, I only got 10 seconds at, or nine seconds at, the, at that point, you know. But if it's pumping, 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 then they say, take your mark. Well, I'm exhausted. You know, once I get in them blocks, it's like, <gasps> I don't want to be exhausted. I want to be on fire at that moment. In that moment, when they say, take your mark, set, set. I become the gun. So... When that gun fires, it's almost like I'm the bullet being fired out of the pistol. And that's my reaction. When I hear that sound, it's almost like there's a firing pin smacking me in my butt and pushing me. I'm the bullet. And it's only me in the chamber. And when he says set, I just breathe all the air in. I take a deep inhale. Take one last look at my competitors in the lane. Now I'm focused. Just thinking, drive and go, drive and go. And then I hold my breath. And then... Sweet, sweet, sweet. Drive, drive, drive. Pick them up, pick them up, pick them up. I let all the air out. And that's when I start running as fast as I can. When you're running and you're so relaxed in what you're doing, to where a song can just pop into your mind about 30 meters. That is the, the ultimate point I think an athlete wants to be because that's when you get that peak performance. It's almost like everything is moving in slow motion and you watching the birds kind of slowly fly by and you hear that song just whistling in your ear. When I take off and I start to climb in the air, it all goes pretty fast. But once I hit that apex of the jump and my hips or up over the bar, time really slows down. I mean, you can just feel this rotation and it feels like someone's 
grabbed a hold of your hips and really given you a, a push, a boost up in the air. Come off the turn, I'm in the front, I'm in the front. Who they coming from and they just stopping me like cheetah. I'm in the front. So I'm just thinking, just get away, just get away, just get away. Turn on the afterburn. Hold on, hold on. Just stretch it out, start going. Get to the top of the curve. Turn on the afterburn. Hold on, hold on. 50 meters left in the Go. High step, high step. Cold Miller come up. I hear a step. Powering down, powering down like a train. See him come up beside me at the peripheral. You gotta hold on. This is always happening. They're trying to get you at the end, but you can fight him off, you can fight him off. At the end, it's just compete, 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 and then lean at the tape. Go ahead, reach and go, reach and go, reach and go. Pump them arms, pump them arms, baby, pump them arms. Get across the line, just smile out, smile out. And we get down to the tape. Yeah, that's, that's kind of stuff I live for. Though. I live for those intense moments like that right there. It's hard to accept the fact sometimes that you are human, but it's true. And I've had a heart surgery in year 2000, but as athletes, and you can ask almost any athlete, they'll tell you, we believe we're invincible. Because if we go in there with any other thought, there's no chance of us accomplishing our goal. Because we have to believe, we have to confuse ourselves into believing that no matter what's wrong with you or what you're dealing with, it's not going to be a factor to what you're trying to accomplish. We believe we're invincible. Are Invincible was produced by Ben Rubin as part of an installation he created for New York's National Track and Field Hall of Fame. It first aired on PRI's The Next Big Thing out of WNYC in New York. Something we call mana shuffling. Okay, this one is Yosei the Morning Star. Creatures with flying can block creatures with flying and without flying. And creatures with flying can't be blocked with creatures without flying. You got anything? Play to the end. Go. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Roman Mars and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program through thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world. Generous support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Illinois Humanities Council. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else. Unless you live everywhere else.